we do have a lot to celebrate about God's goodness. And uh, I wanted to start before we jump into 1 Peter today. You can get a head start there if you want to turn there in your Bible. But um, a few weeks ago, Pastor Dell stood up and presented an opportunity for us to help Afghan refugees, not the ones who are coming here, but ones that are stuck more over there, people that are uh, believers in Jesus who have either been inside of Afghanistan you know, having to flee their homes and hide. Uh, others who've ended up in neighboring countries, which are also not friendly to Christianity, but in refugee camps there. Um, and a lot of those people had to pick up whatever they could and leave right away, essentially taking nothing with them and without any real plan or, you know, future possibility in front of them as to what to do. Um, so one of our ministry partners as a church, his name is Hannah Shaheen. He works in the Middle East and sometimes over towards Central Asia here a little bit. Um, he had put together a plan for how to find and then also serve and help some of those Christian refugees who are um, essentially blending in among the masses of other people who are displaced. And, uh, and so we had put this need before the church to participate in that. Um, really exciting. More than $12,000 has already come in for that. Uh, just a lot of generosity among our people here. That's really exciting. That pays for the trip that uh, they wanted to take, uh, that would be taking people who would blend in and going off to find um, Christians who are among some of these camps and things like that, knowing that some of those people will have other benefits that will come, but Christians, when they're discovered to be Christians, are likely not going to have whatever benefits are available, so they would need more help. Um, and so in addition to paying for that trip, um, we also have enough money then to help sponsor at least four of those families giving them some living expenses for about six months to help them figure out what's going to happen next. That offering opportunity is still open through the end of October, so I wanted to let you know that in case you hadn't climbed on board. Um, and you, you, generally, I don't know who gives what in our church. I don't like look at the specifics just because I want to be able to treat everybody equally. And um, so I did ask our team. I said, well, hey, that 12,000, like, was, that, was that like one person who did that or did a lot of people participate? And they said, well, there's one $5,000 gift to pay for that team. Uh, otherwise, it was a whole bunch of small gifts, uh, which shows me that a lot of people in our church have already said, hey, I want to be a part of this mission. But if you're missing out, um, you can go to our church website. It's right there on the front page. Click that. You can give um, if you'd like to or drop something in the offering box on your way out. Um, and all that money will go um, off to serve people that likely in this lifetime we will never meet. Uh, but I'm sure um, that gift at that time is going to be really meaningful to them. So thank you for being a part of that story so far. All right, turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, in our series here, we've been talking about faith under pressure, faith no matter what. And Peter in chapter 1 says that when our faith is persecuted, when our faith is tested that way, it's like we go through the fire, refining fire that makes our faith stronger than it would have been had we never gone through the test. Um, and so when we think about the struggles in our lives, we know, well, as human beings, we're all going to have a certain level of struggle to begin with, no matter what our external circumstances are. But in the context that Peter was writing, he was specifically addressing the fact that the government and the systems of that day and age were directly, physically persecuting believers in Jesus. And so it wasn't just sort of negative peer pressure against doing the right thing. They had that. Everybody has that. This was more than that. This was the you know, edicts from the emperor to kill Christians. 
Uh, this was the systems that were built in that time, like slavery and oppression of different kinds of people. And somebody is a Christian, they become a Christian in the midst of that. What are they supposed to do? They're facing pressure and persecution on all sides. So Peter writes this book to those people. And when we read it, of course, there's lessons for our lives right now. But I feel like reading First Peter is sort of a preparatory step if you expect that in the future you might face pressure for your faith. If you look at the trends in the world and you say, I think it's going to be harder to be a faithful Christian in the future than it is right now, First Peter's your book. Okay, so here's how we've been walking through it. Uh, just kind of asking key questions. Today our question is, what if I have to suffer? And that's going to start in 3.13. That's what we'll start reading here in just a second. Last week when we, when we looked at how Peter was explaining if you're in these circumstances, how to act appropriately, knowing, okay, we're, we're sort of like visitors in the culture we're in. We don't belong to this world if we're following Jesus, but we're still living in this world. And so how, what, what's the right cadence? Um, and Peter is saying you follow the way of Jesus in whatever complicated situation you find yourself in. So you're in an oppressive household, your husband is a tyrant, and you're a Christian woman now trying to follow Jesus, what do you do? Well, you look at the example of Jesus, you follow him. Um, or in chapter, th in chapter two, he talks to slaves. He says, if you're, a, you know, here in the Roman Empire, slavery was the, you know, a huge part of their economy. It was all accepted practice. There was no freedom movement or anything, or not that worked. And so, so if you become a Christian, you're a slave, what do you wake up the next morning and do? And Peter says, you walk forward following Jesus in his steps. So the question is, well, what if I'm following Jesus and I'm trying to do the right thing, but then I actually do have to suffer? They catch me and they, they take me to the Colosseum. What do I do then? Um, or I'm, I'm under direct, like I lose my job, my family abandons me. Then what do I do? So we're going to read from verse 13 in chapter 3, picking up right where we left off last week. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? We wish that was an all, a rhetorical question, but the reality is there are people who will harm you if you're eager to do good. That's the whole point of this. He says, but even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see a good life. What a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned. But he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. So he went and preached to the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated at the place of honor next to God. And all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, 
you must arm yourselves with the same attitude that he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. You've had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy, their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties, their terrible worship of idols. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things that they do, so they slander you. But remember that they will have to face God, who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead." That is why the good news is preached to those who are now dead. So although they were destined to die like all people, they now live forever with God in the Spirit. Now there's a lot to unpack in this reading, right? So many things to think about. Here's how I want to frame it for us today. And we, we want to go right to the practical. If we face persecution, if you have to suffer, how do you think about that? What do you do? How do you even explain what's happening? So let's walk it through. First of all, why does persecution happen? You know, zoom out from the text for a minute and just go like, you know, here we're, we're prepping for, and, the, and Peter's trying to prep people for difficult times. Why? Well, why? Why don't people just get along? Hey, here's the reason, the primary reason, I believe, that tyrannical slave masters, bad husbands, angry officials, even whole big government structures have to oppose Christianity so much. It's because the pretended lords of earth cannot tolerate those who reject their fantasy. When you say Jesus is Lord, what are you also saying about all the other people who want to be Lord? They're not it. So your commitment to Jesus is a slap in the face to the people who think that they should be number one. Case in point, the emperor of the Roman Empire, Nero, was just this sort of a guy, a murderous, crazy tyrant in every regard. And so for you, to, it, it wasn't just, oh, these people believe differently than I do, we'll leave them alone. It was, these people believe someone else is the Lord and we can't tolerate that in our empire. We're the boss here. They either follow us or they're killed, they're persecuted, they're abandoned. So that can happen on a macro level or a micro level. That can happen with whole big government structures. That was the issue with communism, it still is. It replaces God in people's lives. All the way to a microstructure like a slave master beating his slave and saying, you will follow me, not Jesus. So here Peter's writing to people who are in these just tragic, difficult, impossible circumstances. And how do we deal with this? This isn't going to go away, right? I mean, we're in a world filled with people who think that they should be in charge. <laughs> so, so it's not going anywhere. This problem is going to keep growing. And that's why Peter said, like, you have to arm yourself with the attitude that Jesus had because you are going to suffer too. In some places, that suffering, if you think of it on a spectrum, you know, you might say like the lighter version of it, not that it doesn't matter as much, but just the, there'd be like a less physical version of this, right? Like just sort of anti-Jesus peer pressure. We all face that probably anywhere in the world that we live. And then it could start stepping up to where maybe you have to pay a price for doing the right thing. You have to walk away from a job or an income opportunity because of 
you're committed to doing the right thing. And you step it up another level and maybe there's active oppression of people who follow Jesus and you step it up to the maximum level and they're literally trying to kill you because you follow Jesus. At any level in that spectrum, you have to decide why is it that I'm choosing to follow Jesus? I mean, this is where our faith gets tested in the ultimate sense, right? Until, until you face a moment of decision like that, your faith could just be sort of a matter of convenience, a matter of cultural acceptance. Maybe your parents are Christians, so you're a Christian. You've never really been pushed to decide for yourself. Persecution pushes you to decide. Okay, we'll come back to that in just a minute. Okay, Jesus, or, uh, Peter said, even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry. Don't be afraid of their threats. Instead, you go back to the central fundamental, the cause of all of this angst. Your, your job, your commitment in your heart is to worship Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. You don't let someone else be your Lord. You follow Jesus. Now, the question that comes then is, well, how, if we know that this is going to be a problem, how do we prepare to deal with it? What I think the first paragraph of this text helps us with. Now, Jesus told us that we needed to be ready, right? Even before, you know, and Peter would have remembered this because he was there at the Last Supper when Jesus was giving the sort of the final coaching to the disciples before he would go to the cross. Remember, he said this. He said, since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. They will do all of this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. The persecution isn't personal to you. It's personal to Jesus. They're persecuting him when they hit you. But you as his follower, you're his representative. So as much as the world might hate what Jesus stands for, they can't take it out on Jesus himself, but they can take it out on you. So how do you act when that's happening? Let's talk about it. Look back at the first paragraph here, starting in verse 13, but then down to verse 14 where it starts to give us some direction. The first thing we do is we reaffirm our commitment. Before the persecution comes, we, we make peace with the fact that Jesus is our Lord. There's other things we could give up. I mean, you can take my house, you can kill my dog, I guess, but you, I'm not going to give up my faith in Jesus. That's where the line is drawn, and it becomes a matter of conviction to give anything up, and, up to and including our own lives to maintain that conviction. So we say, who is Lord in my life? If Jesus is Lord, that's going to change how I behave. That's going to change my attitude. It'll change my, the way I word things, the way I pursue things, my dreams for the future, my expectations. The next thing that we have to do to prepare is an attitude check on our answers. Now, what do I mean by that? Look at the text here, verse 15. So he says, you must worship Jesus as the Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. So this is challenging, I think, for us in a free culture. Because for us, a free culture, especially the one that we're living in right now, tends to reward the voices that get angrier and more flamboyant with attention. So you might think in your American citizenship track that the louder and angrier they get, the louder and angrier you should get. If you're going to have your voice heard, you've got to get angry. You get snarky. 
You get sarcastic. You push harder. You demand more. That's an interesting balance to hold, right? Because we'd say, well, our system's kind of set up for people to do that. We're supposed to do that, kind of. But here we are, as Peter instructs us, we're ready. I mean, if someone says, why are you taking all this flack for being a Christian? Why would you go to the Colosseum? Why wouldn't you just give it up? Be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you, but do it in a gentle and respectful way. So you start with your attitude, and you say, my job, even in the way I talk about this and even in the way I respond to potential suffering, I have to act and sound like Jesus would act and sound. So I know we all are challenged by this because the like the incoming media to us all discourages us from acting and sounding reasonable, right? <laughs> because the angrier you are, uh, the more likes you're going to get. And, and so we have to really heart check on this. Say, Lord, the things that I say, the comments I make, the things that I post, the things that I share, Lord, I, I want these to be that if Jesus had an account like I do on the internet, that you could scroll Jesus' account and my account and run into essentially the same attitude. If it's not that way, we're not representing him the way we're called to. So the next piece, he says, you've got to keep a clear conscience. It's not just your attitude, your behavior, your conscience, which if you think your conscience is just sort of that mental checklist of what's right and wrong, if you do something nice, your conscience is happy, you feel good. If you do something bad, you get guilty. That's your conscience saying, hey, you shouldn't have done that. So you think a clear conscience is one where you could think, I don't, I don't have anything I know that's wrong that I'm not trying to work out. And almost think about when you, you know, if you, this has happened to me a couple weeks ago where I, I owed somebody some money, just a small amount of money, but I just kept forgetting to pay them when I would see them and it just got longer and longer and you start thinking, okay, like I feel bad about this. Like I should, I've got to figure out how to get this off of my conscience because every time I'm thinking about my life, I've got this little thing I've got to pay. So you, you imagine here as a believer in Jesus, you're saying, I don't want anything on my conscience, in my behavior, in the way that I'm acting in this world, to be an offense that would justify somebody pushing back against Christianity. That is, they're, go they're going to push, right? But if they push, I don't want to give them a reason to say we're right in pushing. So that's why the text says, if you suffer for doing what's wrong, I mean, if you're hateful and angry and selfish and somebody pushes against you, you don't get a trophy for that, you know? But, but if you... If you in your heart are acting like Jesus and the things that you say and do, and your conscience is clear, then even though the world is still going to threaten you and accuse you and have malice against you, they're the ones that walk away with a conscience problem, not you. Because they know, they can see your life, and they know you're on the right side. And then the last thing is to trust God for the rewards that will make it worthwhile. We recognize in this world the aim is not just for our lives, for everything to work out in the end. I mean, I like it when it works that way. I hope for that. But, the, but the, the real way that it's going to work out in the end is in eternity, not here and now. And so we would say, Lord, even if I do lose something to persecution that I never gain back in this lifetime, I'm trusting in my eternal reward anyway. This life is just temporary anyway. So... What is the impact that persecution has on Jesus' followers? Sadly, there's lots of data to look at. 
right? Because many people throughout history have been persecuted. So we can, we can say, well, what happens? And what's the difference if you live in a persecuted situation or if you live in a free situation? How, how does your faith come out differently? And, and is Peter right that persecution is actually like a refining fire that makes your faith stronger? So let's walk through a little bit of what is taught to us here. First of all, persecution helps us see our lives in Christ. Now, there's a lot in the text that we're not going to dive deep into today, but here's the skimming the surface of that. You can think about it more later. We have hope during moments of persecution because our lives now run parallel to Jesus's life. We follow in his steps through suffering and then on into glory and purpose and joy. So you'd say, what was it? You know, Jesus is there. He's getting falsely accused. He gets nailed to the cross. Why didn't he run out of hope? Why wasn't he discouraged? Why was he thinking about forgiving his captors? And why wasn't he just in full despair? Well, because he knew something was going to happen after the cross, right? It, to it totally changes the experience if you know something more is coming. And so our lives running parallel to Jesus would say, even if I run into something difficult, or even if I run into the ultimate point of decision where I have to give my own life as a martyr for the gospel, I don't have to turn to despair because something else is coming. That's not the end. This life is going to end anyway. And so, so by recognizing that we are in Christ, it gives us hope to face any challenge, especially persecution. Okay, the next thing it does, it helps us prioritize personal purity. So going on into chapter four, look at what the author says here. If you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. I've really thought about this a lot this week. What does that mean? The next phrase, you won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. I don't claim to have an inside track on the understanding for this, but let me give you my working theory of why if you suffer physically for Christ, you're finished with sin. If you make the kind of investment of yourself, your life, your physical lifetime, and you've already paid so much for your commitment to Christ, are you really going to go back and blow the rest of your life on frivolous things? Or will that, will that experience change who you are for the rest of your earthly lifetime? When you suffer for Christ, you have to step forward to another level of decision. I mean, many of us in this room, we'd say we've made a decision for Christ, right? We decided to believe in Jesus, we decided to turn from our sins, and you know, some people enter that stream differently, but you know, a common way somebody might do that is they might say, you know, I had a moment where I actually prayed and said, you know, Lord, I want to give you my life, and I'm here. I put my faith in Jesus, and I want to follow you. Well, that's a commitment of intentions, of words, of, but you realize there would be different levels of that commitment. When you face physical suffering for the gospel, that's the final level. I mean, that's as far as you can go as a committed person. It's not theory anymore. It's actually happening to you. So persecution helps us prioritize purity in our lives because we realize, I don't, I'm not going to waste my life on sin if I go to that level of commitment. 
It also helps us break with our sinful past. Peter said, you've had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy. Think about what everybody else out in the world is excited about, ramped up about, and you would look at that and say, that's so small. I, I don't, I've had enough of that. I, I want to live for something that's going to outlast this broken world. It also helps us take life seriously. 4.4 says, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things that they are doing. And so they slander you. Now this happens at every level of being a Christian, right? Right from day one. If you start to follow Jesus, immediately you're doing a, a few things differently and your friends are saying, well, why don't you just, why are you doing that? Why, why, we used to do this over here. Why don't you come with us again? The further in you are as a Jesus follower, the more this dynamic is pronounced. And the more you become different from the person you used to be and maybe from what your former friends still are. So there's a lot of gap that is opened up there. And then the last one is it helps us choose sides. 4-7, which we'll get into next week in the, in the verses following, says the end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, something's going to happen, right? The end of the world's coming, and this stuff's all true. My life is going to go a new direction from what it would have gone if I didn't believe any of that. When persecution comes, it forces you to pick your side in a very concrete way. So you say the battle of good and evil, or love versus hate, Christ versus Satan, freedom versus control. Which side are you on? It's one thing to write a paper about it or to make a faith statement about it or pray about it, but when you are there physically suffering about it, it's the ultimate level of decision. It forces you to pick a side. Now, here's something I discovered. I I've been reading um, authors who have lived through different persecuted scenarios just to try to get in the head of like, what, how does this work? How, how, are, how is this different? And uh, one that I, I've always appreciated is Brother Andrew. We've talked about him before. He was the famous Bible smuggler in the, after the Iron Curtain fell across Eastern Europe and communism was you know, either perverting or preventing Christianity. Uh, Brother Andrew, who was from Western Europe where there was freedom, he would just drive across the borders and try to go meet Christians and help them who were in these persecuted situations. And he met a pastor in East Germany who said something to him that, at least, for me, it actually really helps me understand why churches tend to do better as far as their multiplication, their evangelism, their mission, when there's pressure. And then when, it, there's, all, when, when there's freedom, everybody gets lethargic. And it doesn't seem like they care. Here's, here's the dynamic. This pastor said, you can't use strong arm tactics against the church without strengthening it. It's always been that way. Under persecution, a man looks at his faith to see if it's worth fighting for. And this is a scrutiny Christianity can always withstand. So you and I have lots of benefits here being in a free society. But we don't have that benefit. Because we could float through our lives being a halfway sort of Christian, and there's no real pushback to that. And kind of come up to Christianity, like to a cafeteria window, and say, well, I kind of like that part, and I like this other thing, so I'll take those, but I'll leave the rest of it for later, maybe someday when I'm more spiritual. And it all is slow motion, and it's all, you know, whether I feel it or not, and, you know, somebody's like, oh, I just, I'm stressed right now, I'm going to take a year to rest, and I'll think about it again. That, you don't have any of those options when you're under physical persecution. In that moment, you have to decide. 
And in that moment, you have to decide, is the faith that I'm believing in Jesus, the idea that he's the Lord, is that worth everything or not? Am I in? Am I out? When you evaluate it that way, according to this pastor, Christianity passes the test. And so churches grow, churches multiply. Faith is strengthened when it's put to the ultimate test, just like Peter said it would be. So today, 26, or 260 million Christians face significant physical persecution for their choice to follow Jesus. What does it mean to you that you aren't one of them? Making an assumption that at least right now in this moment you aren't one of them. Maybe some of you have faced that in your lifetime or you will in the future. But right now, there's a lot of our brothers and sisters across the world that are facing the same things that Peter was writing to the first century church about having to face. And we're not among that group. I don't, I don't exactly know how to answer that question. What does it mean to not be one of that group? I mean, I guess I would say thank you to God, but I'm not even sure if I should say that. I, I don't know. I'm thinking it through. A couple other questions that sort of spring off of that. Well, you've got freedom right now. What are you doing with that? You have prosperity right now. What are you doing with that? In our own narrative, I feel like we get really, really caught up in worrying about those things disappearing in the future, and we forget the fact that literally we have them right now. So what will we do with what we literally have right now? Here's a prayer that I want us to think about and pray, and we're going to take communion together in just a minute. Communion time a little bit different. No, no music. It's not really set up as a prayer time or worship moment. It's more of to set up a moment of decision for you, for me, to reflect on the fact that when Jesus faced physical persecution, he did so with us in mind. He did so with the big picture in mind. He did so as this act of love for all of us, and he knew he would go to the cross, but there was a story that was going to pick up after the cross, and it would make all the suffering worth it. So as we take communion today, that's what I, personally, that's what I want to reflect on. I want to invite you to reflect on that as well. Say, Lord, in the moment of decision, what is my decision? And on the spectrum of persecution and pressure, you know, we can do the thought project, I guess, of saying if it came down to it, would I give my life for what I believe about Jesus? But we can start with what we probably are facing, which is temptations to waste our lives on silly things or the anti-Jesus peer pressure that would be around us that would keep our faith suppressed and acceptable to the culture. So, let's take some time to pray. And as I begin this prayer time, I'd ask those who can help me pass communion out if you could come up at this time as well. So Lord, we're here seeing what Peter wrote to the churches 2,000 years ago and recognizing that the dynamics haven't changed that much in this world. There are still a lot of would-be lords out there who want us to follow them and not you. And in our hearts, we all have the propensity to 
do that to ourselves, to try to claim rule over our own lives and deny your rule. So Lord, in these next few moments, as we reflect, as we pray, I just ask that you would give each one of us some fresh light in our heart about who you want us to become, about what our commitment to you really means, about what it is to follow you as our Lord. And we want to dedicate here the next few moments as the elements are being passed out just to silent prayer.